Welcome to the Vetfolio Podcast, brought to you in part by Elanco. We're pleased that you've decided to join us to explore the topic of emerging tick-borne diseases. More ticks, more places, with our guest speaker, Dr. Susan Little. The views and opinions provided are those of the presenter and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, or policies of Vetfolio and its sponsors. Now let's dive into the session with our guest speaker. Hi, everyone. I'm Susan Little, and I'm really glad you joined me today to review ticks and tick-borne diseases, including some changes we've seen in the last few years with how commonly ticks are found on pets and people, and what we know about the diversity of diseases they transmit to us and to our patients. In this four-part podcast, we're going to review some of the reasons we're seeing such an increase in ticks and tick-borne infections in North America. I'll describe a few of the newer tick-borne illnesses we may now be dealing with, in patients or be asked about by clients, and I'll explain some strategies to not only effectively control ticks on our patients, but also effectively educate pet owners about the importance of routine tick control. Ticks are a serious health threat to us and to our patients. They are aggressive in finding hosts, and they're capable of transmitting severe, debilitating, even fatal infections. So ticks aren't just gross. They're a serious medical concern, and as veterinarians, we have to be proactive about protecting pets from ticks and from the diseases they transmit. So in this first podcast, I'll go over some of the reasons we've seen such an increase in ticks and tick-borne infections, really why they have spread to new areas and become more common in areas where they've long been a problem. And one reason is habitat and wildlife host change. Ticks have more places to live that are supportive of their needs, and they have plenty of hosts on which to feed. And so we'll talk about really what a tick needs to thrive in nature, how a changing environment has met those needs and led to more ticks, and then review some examples of disease emergence associated with these increased tick populations. There are four major, several minor in addition, but four major species of ticks important throughout North America. The first is the deer tick, or black-legged tick, Ixodes scapularis, which historically is the most important tick in the northeast and upper Midwest, where it transmits the agent of Lyme disease and other pathogens. There's a similar species, Ixodes pacificus, that transmits the Lyme disease pathogen in states and provinces along the west coast. The second major tick in North America is Amblyoma americanum, the lone star tick, which historically was, and still is, the premier tick of the south, where it transmits organisms that cause ehrlichiosis as well as other disease agents. But that north-south distinction with deer ticks in the north and lone star ticks in the south has really changed. And in recent decades, lone star ticks have moved steadily northward and are now found throughout most of the eastern half of the United States. At the same time, deer ticks transmitting Lyme disease have expanded in all directions, including south, And they're now found in southern Appalachia, and they continue to be described in the middle south of the United States, places like the Carolinas and southwest Virginia and Kentucky. The Ixodes ticks that transmit Lyme disease are also moving northward. They're now in Canada, and they're radiating outward from the historic focus in the northeast and the upper Midwestern U.S. to just cover more areas. A third major tick species is Dermacenter variabilis, the American dog tick, which is still commonly found on pets and people across the U.S. and Canada. And then the fourth is the brown dog tick, Ripocephalus sanguineus, which is identified from just about anywhere dogs are found. So each of these four tick species is very different. They each have their own habitat, their own host preferences. Deer ticks and lone star ticks prefer wooded areas with a dense understory where they'll be protected from desiccation 
They don't need wilderness by any means. The ticks do really well in the edge habitat that's created by suburban development. But some honeysuckle or privet, any kind of ground cover really, provides shelter and keeps them from drying out. And because adults of both those species, both Lone Star tick adults and Ixodes or deer tick adults, feed on deer, they'll often be at higher intensity in areas where deer are plentiful. The dermocenter ticks, especially the American dog ticks, tend to be found more in grassy fields or overgrown meadows. The immature stages of dermocenter feed on rodents and rabbits, and then the adults often prefer medium-sized mammals like raccoons or foxes. So we'll see dermocenter ticks commonly in agricultural areas, but also in neighborhoods where there's ample prairie domestic wildlife right around the homes. So the brown dog ticks, Ripocephalus sanguineus, are different. They're not wildlife ticks at all. These are ticks that are really happiest indoors, inside homes or kennels, anywhere dogs are found. Brown dog ticks are able to survive the low humidity environment that's found indoors, and they'll set up long-term premise infestations in our homes. So in that regard, they act more like fleas than ticks. And then they're also very tolerant of high temperatures. So they do tend to be reported most commonly from the southern U.S. But because they can live entirely indoors, we've seen premise infestations with thousands of ticks reported from indoor areas, from kennels and from homes, even from really cold regions like Ontario in January or February. So the ticks don't really respect any sort of climate barriers or seasonal patterns. So overall... What exactly has changed in North America to lead to these higher tick populations? Well, one major factor is habitat change. Reforestation, regrowth of vegetation with that dense understory, and that creates more habitat for the wildlife ticks, but also more browse for the deer, and then more mast or food for the other wildlife hosts that support ticks, like deer ticks or lone star ticks. Deer ticks in particular do well when mice and other small rodents are plentiful, because the immature stages rely on the small mammals as a blood meal source. So changes in habitat caused by development for homes or for commercial businesses can often lead to really huge numbers of mice in a given area, and then that begets huge numbers of ticks. Not all hosts are equally competent in nature to support the ticks, and that development often leads to reduced host diversity. And so it skews the population of the remaining wildlife, the remaining animals in the natural environment, towards an overabundance of hosts that do support ticks, like deer and mice, and then an underabundance of hosts that prey on that tick food. So predators that require larger areas of uninterrupted land to thrive will be less common as development is happening, as new areas of developed property are established. And that will lead to more tick food, because they're not being removed by the predators. Another change that we're watching play out over time is a shift in abiotic factors, so things like higher average temperatures and increased humidity, and both of those can support higher tick populations in nature. Adults of the deer tick or the black-legged tick are actually most active in the cooler months, usually October through February or March in most areas. Now, they're not active at very low temperatures, so adult deer ticks begin questing or looking for a host to feed on whenever the temperature goes above about 38 or 40 degrees Fahrenheit. So with warmer winters, more areas of North America have had a larger number of days where the adult deer ticks are able to quest to look for a host, to feed, to mate, and that leads to more larvae 
and nymphs the following year. So the females that are able to feed and mate will lay a clutch of eggs that's going to hatch out larvae, and then those larvae are able to find a host and feed in the warmer months. They'll molt to nymphs, and then the nymphs can find hosts and feed, and then there's more adults the year after. And so the population cycles ever higher as there's warmer winters where they have more days they can be active in the environment. Lone star ticks are really different. The adult Amblyoma americanum really prefer warmer climates. And so they're most active in early to mid-spring when it first starts to warm up. And that preference for higher temperatures explains in part why historically Lone Star ticks were primarily found in the south. But with more areas in North America experience a warmer climate for a longer period of the year, the Lone Star ticks have been able to successfully expand northward, and they now overlap deer ticks in most of their range. And then the third factor that contributes to an increase in tick-borne infections is this idea of overlapping niche, that increasingly we find ticks are where we are and that we are where the ticks are. So if we and our dogs just stayed entirely indoors, the risk of tick infestation would be much lower. Not zero, because brown dog ticks are more than happy to come indoors to find us, but staying inside would all but eliminate the risk of acquiring a tick bite from a wood tick or a lone star tick or a deer tick. But not only do we go out frequently with our dogs, we also increasingly move into areas, especially recently developed areas, where tick populations are quite high. And in the natural landscaping around a home that allows it to sort of seamlessly transition into the woods or provides privacy between one house and the home next door, also provides shelter for the ticks and food and shelter for the wildlife, and all of that creates risk. So because new housing developments or retirement communities are often built on previously undeveloped tracks, we have essentially entered tick habitat. So what does all this mean for disease? Well, we've seen several examples of how habitat change and development can contribute to increase in tick-borne infections. One example that's often discussed is the spread of Lyme disease across eastern North America. Historically, the great majority of infections with Lyme disease were found in just a handful of states, mostly in the northeastern U.S. And it is still true that Lyme disease is a regional disease, but the region has grown to include southern Canada across most of the border with the Midwestern and northeastern U.S., as well as Midwestern states, including North Dakota, Ohio, Lower Michigan, all of New England, so all of the northeast is now endemic or hyperendemic for Lyme disease and the mid-Atlantic region, and even mountainous areas like West Virginia and southwestern Virginia. And we really expect to see continued confirmation of this spread even further south into North Carolina and Kentucky and even Tennessee. And that spread means more people and pets are at risk of infection. And so veterinarians have had to update their practice protocols for tick control and vaccination to protect against those infections. Another example of disease emergence caused by increased tick populations was the outbreak of Rocky Mountain spotted fever in the southwestern U.S. The major tick in that region, and it's really the most common tick that we see in Southern California, Arizona, New Mexico, West Texas, is the brown dog tick, Ripicephalus sanguineus, the one that will set up home infestations. It can also live outdoors in the arid southwest. And because that tick can transmit Rickettsia rickettsii, the causative agent of severe, often fatal, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, there's a real problem when you have overpopulation of brown dog ticks transmitting the Rocky Mountain spotted fever agent. So dog overpopulation in some rural communities 
led to just massive brown dog tick overpopulation and then spillover of Rocky Mountain spotted fever to dogs and people, including children in the community. Now, once community-wide tick control was instituted, the problem was brought under control. But the experience really provided a chilling example of what can happen in the absence of tick control, in the absence of veterinary care, and the devastating cost for both public health and veterinary health. A third example of the relationship between ticks, habitat, disease, is seen in ehrlichiosis in the southern U.S. And this disease, which is caused by infection with ehrlichia in people, is actually the most widely prevalent, potentially fatal tick-borne infection in the southern U.S., and it's especially common in the Middle South, where high Lone Star tick populations find great supportive habitat and plenty of deer to keep the population cycling at a really high level. So in one study, invasive honeysuckle, which provides great browse for the deer and excellent habitat for ticks, was shown to be associated with increased risk of tick-borne infection. So just the incursion into an area with overgrowth of honeysuckle led to more risk of tick-borne disease. Another study that was done soon after ehrlichiosis was first described as a clinical disease in people focused on retirees in a golfing retirement community in Tennessee. And because of the large number of cases in that community, physicians went in and surveyed the residents and asked them a number of questions, like how much time do you spend outside? How often are you bitten by a tick? Do you use a tick repellent? And as you would expect, all of those were associated with risk of infection. But they also asked them their average golf score, and it turned out that the less skilled golfers were much more likely to have been infected with ehrlichia from a tick bite. And the researchers concluded those individuals were likely spending less time on the greens and more time in the rough looking for a ball, and that translated to a higher risk of infection. So it's just really clear from the work that's been done that more time in an environment with ticks directly translates to increased risk of tick-borne infection. The increase in ticks and tick-borne infections that we've seen nationwide in recent years is largely due to these changes that have conspired to give ticks more of what they need to thrive. A changing environment, like better tick habitat, more hosts to feed on for sure, but also shifting abiotic factors like warmer temperatures at higher latitudes and higher altitudes, all of that has led to more ticks active at more times of the year and that means greater disease risk. And it also means that our clients and patients need us more than ever before to provide advice and support as they work to control ticks in the face of increasing tick populations and higher risk from a variety of diseases. The ones we've known about for some time, like Lyme disease and ehrlichiosis, but also some newer agents that researchers are just now learning about. So in the next podcast, we'll talk about some of those newly described infections and what can be done to protect against all the diseases, not just the ones we know to worry about today. Thanks, everyone. Thank you to our listeners for spending time with us. We hope that you found this information shared in this session useful. Thank you to our podcast sponsor, Elenco, for their support. Let us know what you thought about this session or what topics you'd like to hear on future podcasts. You can connect with the Vetfolio team via email at support at vetfolio.com.